With the latest agriculture news from across the state and nation, it's time for the AgNet News Hour from AgNet West. Here's your host, Sabrina Halbertson. Good morning, and thank you for joining us today on the AgNet News Hour. Coming up later, there's less than a week left to apply for the 2024 Leadership Farm Bureau class. You have what you need to know. But starting off our show today, here's Brian German with the Chill Hour Report. In this week's California Chill Hour Report, brought to you by Dormex. Wake up your buds with Dormex. Today we're joined once again by Jerry Watson, owner of Watson Ag Irrigation and Chemical. Jerry farms about 500 acres of table grapes, almonds, and pistachios in Fresno County. Now, Jerry, last week you were telling us about a trial in your pistachios that you started two years ago using Dormex, and you had some pretty good results getting about 266 pounds more per row where you had made those applications. And so uh, let's pick up there with what you did this last season with Dormex and how your trees did. I mixed the tank the same, but I just went every other row, and it definitely made quite a difference. That was uh, Golden Hills variety and uh, UCB1 rootstock. Those were sixth leaf two years ago and seventh leaf this last year. And I understand, you know, they're definitely going to be more. But I went from three truckloads to 14 truckloads. So it was a substantial difference, you know. And I left uh, 24 rows out because I was doing every other row that I didn't spray. And I did not harvest it different. But, you know, visually, it looked a lot different to me and some other growers that looked at it and to the banker. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I bet. And uh, now I'm curious, were you having some particular trouble with chill accumulation in your area, or uh, was it just your familiarity with Dormex in your table grapes that made you want to give it a go in your pistachios? Being new at it, I knew that you needed chill hours, and I knew what Dormex does, so I thought, well, it's worth a try to see if it made that much difference. I think we had pretty adequate chill hours this year or last season, but, you know, I think in a year when you don't, it would really pay off. And now are you going to be looking at giving it another try again this year? (laughs) Of course. Yep. And will you be going with uh, the same type of application, that same every other row approach again this year? Yeah, I think I can. I mean, I think so. And information from the UC Davis Chill Calculator shows that as of January 8th, the Shafter Simmis station has logged 33 portions under the dynamic model with 561 hours below 45 degrees. The station in five points has registered 33.6 portions with 557 hours. There have been 700 hours in Merced with 34.5 cumulative portions. In Manteca, there have been 545 chill hours, equating to 37.4 portions. Finally, the Simmis station in Durham has registered 41.2 portions with 638 hours. And this has been the California Chill Hour Report brought to you by Dormex. Tune in again next week for another episode. Attacks on cargo ships in the Red Sea have the potential to disrupt global trade. Michael Clement shares more on how the ocean shippers are adapting. Last Friday, the second largest shipping company in the world announced a stoppage of shipments through the Red Sea as a result of militant attacks on ships. Danny Munch, American Farm Bureau Federation economist, says the attacks are impacting a major trade route. 
The attacks from the Houthi militants have pushed many exporters to look for safer routes. Is the most cost-effective way to carry goods from Eastern Asia to Europe and parts of the Middle East, as well as all those goods traveling in the opposite direction. Estimates put it as much as 15% of world trade occurs through the Red Sea, including about 8% of grain trade. Diverting around the area at minimum means an extra 10 days needed to complete the routes. This means 10 days of additional wages for the crew, 10 days worth of more fuel, and 10 days of general delay to a buyer, which is more sensitive in perishable food products. It also means ships are not returning as quickly as they have been, and that reduces the overall capacity of the broader global shipping systems. Munch says the issue is not impacting farmers now, but agriculture may see impacts if attacks continue. Long-term disruptions, though, can have impacts on U.S. farmers. We're already seeing that surcharges have been added onto a lot of ag exporters already without a 30-day notice, which is actually mandated by the Federal Maritime Commission. So it won't be long until farmers who have exported goods to those regions may feel a pinch. They'll be watching this closely. Michael Clements, Washington. Don't forget if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you just want to catch the news at a different time, you can subscribe to our podcast and have statewide agriculture news at your convenience. All you have to do is search for the Agnet News Hour on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's Agnet News Hour and it's available on both Android and Apple devices. This is the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson and we will be back in just a moment. You are listening to the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson. In today's National Spotlight, more small-scale, underserved, and organic farmers will know more about crop insurance under a new education effort. Gary Crawford explains. Well, I know this is from way out in left field, but let's go back to 1983. And a movie with that famous little dance number by Tom Cruise. Yes, you got it. Risky Business was the movie, and in the real world today... Farming is at the top of the list of the world's riskiest businesses, at least financially, and no wonder. What with the threat of weather and market disasters over which farmers have zero control? And so, with all of that risk, comes, of course, the importance of crop insurance. Which, in some cases, takes the form of revenue insurance as well. That's Marsha Bunger. She runs the USDA's Risk Management Agency, RMA for short. It oversees hundreds of different policies sold to farmers through private insurance companies. And over the last few years of climate change and all, crop insurance has become a vital safety net for many farmers. In 2023, RMA helped provide the largest farm safety net in history. We had a record $207 billion um, in protection for American agriculture. And most farmers have a very high opinion of crop insurance. Our ability to market our grain and financially survive depends on crop insurance. Crop insurance is a vital tool for farmers, and Congress must not do anything to undermine it. I hope that any changes contemplated to the federal crop insurance program only serve to strengthen it. And so Marsha Bunger says crop insurance is a way of life for many mainstream farmers. However, I still continue as I travel across the country to hear people that don't know about crop insurance, or maybe there's some confusion about what it is. And so I think it's vital that we continue to provide means to be able to educate and inform everybody. To that end, USDA has just announced a $3 million grant program to help nonprofit groups, educational institutions, and others to develop farmer training programs and events around record keeping, around training producers, 
what tools are available. And how to use those tools. USDA is looking particularly for project proposals aimed at underserved producers, small-scale farmers, and organic farmers. For more information on this program, go online, search Risk Management Education Partnerships. Risk Management Education Partnerships. Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Case IH is nodding to its past while focusing on the future. Chad Smith has the story. The 2024 tractor lineup delivers more purposeful design, technology, and performance. The lineup includes the company's most powerful tractor ever, the Steiger 715 Quad Track. Fran Rosenquist, a farmer from Atwater, Minnesota, saw the 715's power and speed with his own eyes. I was comparing it to the 620s pulling 60-foot field cultivators, 60-and-a-half-foot field cultivators, and at 26-and-a-half-foot rippers. It's amazing what that tractor will pull. I guess I can't believe how much horsepower that thing really puts to the ground, and it's just an awesome tractor. I can't stress that enough. If somebody gets a chance, they need to go drive one and then have an open mind about it. For me, because of the fact we're used to running 620s, I had a real good comparison because the 620 is a pretty awesome tractor and comparing it to that 715, it's a noticeable change. The Steiger 715 delivers built-in power and speed to cover a lot more ground in less time. Rosenquist says the 778 peak horsepower engine is also nimble enough to drive on any surface and improves traction to reduce soil compaction with its longer track design. It's faster going down the road, which I kind of liked, and it's smoother down the road. The 620s aren't rough by any means, but I thought this one here was a little bit smoother on the road, and it's probably got to do with the fact that it's got a little bit longer wheelbase on it, or track base. The tracks were very smooth going down the road. I could tell the difference on the, from the 620s. The Steiger 715 comes with better visibility to improve the driving experience in and and out of the field. He says the sight lines in the tractor are much improved. We run till at least midnight just about to get everything in and with the lights on that tractor, it's a dream running it at night. It really is. It's, it's really fun. I just like to watch what I'm doing and you can see out of this thing very easily and it's surprising with that big hood that's on there. You wouldn't think you could see as good as you can out the front, but it's amazing. A taper on that hood, you can see the ground really, really easy. To learn more about the Steiger 715, speak to your local dealership or visit Case IA. Chad Smith reporting. That's today's National Spotlight. Now here's Will Jordan with the Livestock Report. In today's Livestock News, on most dairies, the big question is, how do I put more milk in the tank? One potential answer lies in improving persistency or helping cows maintain milk production after they peak. Brittany Wood, Director of Canola Utilization for the Canola Council of Canada, shares advice on how to improve persistency on the dairy. Persistency is really about the dairy cow producing high quality milk at high volume for as long as they can. We think about this milk lactation curve that the dairy cow has. They give birth to their calf, then they are increasing their milk production, reaching a peak milk production a few months 
in to that lactation curve. And then over the course of the next following months, they slowly start to reduce the amount of milk that they're producing. The idea around persistency is that they meet that peak and then they keep producing high volumes of milk for as long as possible, reducing that rate of decline of milk production so that the cow is putting more milk into the milk tank and improving profitability for the farm. Improving persistency is the challenge for the dairy industry. It has been a bit of an elusive task for the dairy industry to understand this from a genetic point of view. It was thought to be mainly controlled by genetics, but that persistency or heritability factor of that persistency through genetics is really low. You have to look at other areas of management and understand what is in your control within your management that you can do to help support the cow. And we really do now have some research that's looking at protein sources to see how they can actually work to support the cow during that time period. That research took place during a trial at the U.S. Dairy Forage Research Center. They looked at feeding cows diets that contained either canola meal or soybean meal. Cows started on trial about 85 days into milk, so they were post that peak milk. And when they looked at the cows at about four weeks into treatment, they found that the canola meal fed cows actually were producing 2.9 pounds more milk per day. This is an observation that is really consistently seen in the literature. When we feed cows canola meal, it's very consistent that they will produce more milk compared to other protein sources. At the end of the trial, when they compared those two groups again, they found that the canola meal fed cows were actually producing 7.2 pounds more milk per day than the other treatment. And canola meal fed cows had greater persistency and were able to have a slower rate of decline. Wood talks about how to pick the right protein. You want to understand what ingredients you have available to you and understand what you're working with. And the amino acid profile of those ingredients is a really good thing to understand. And so every protein ingredient brings something a little bit different. So I mentioned about the canola meal bringing that methionine and histidine, which are really essential amino acids for the cow. Soybean meal is a great source of lysine, also very important. And so working with your nutritionist to really understand what you have available to you is going to be a good place to start. If you want more information on feeding canola, go to canolamazing.com. For Agnet West, I'm Will Jordan. This is the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson. We will be back in just a moment. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson. Coming up in a few moments, we'll have today's This Land of Ours report, but first, more of the day's agriculture news. And with today's Agnet West headlines, here's Agnet West Farm News Director Brian German. The largest U.S. milk marketing cooperative, Dairy Farmers of America, has completed its first purchase of verified carbon credits within the livestock value chain. The milestone transaction occurred in the novel carbon insetting marketplace where farmers receive direct compensation for their sustainable practices. The recently launched cloud-based livestock carbon market, a collaboration between Alanco Animal Health and Avian, introduces a protocol rewarding producers for adopting specific manure management standards or utilizing Alanco's feed additive Ruminsen. As part of DFA's commitment to reducing greenhouse gas emissions by 30% across its supply chain by 2030, this initiative aligns with their sustainability goals. The marketplace, providing real-time credits, offers farmers a tangible income for their sustainability efforts, potentially injecting over $200 million in value into the U.S. dairy industry. 
The U.S. Department of Agriculture's Risk Management Agency is offering up to $3 million for cooperative agreements to educate underserved, small-scale, and organic producers on risk management and climate-smart practices. The risk management education partnerships aim to provide funding to organizations including nonprofits and land-grant universities to develop training and resources for producers, particularly those who historically lacked access to risk management information. Interested organizations can apply through grants.gov by March 4th. A broad range of risk management training activities are eligible for the program, including crop insurance options, financial management, natural disaster preparedness, and more. The investment builds on the $13 million RMA has provided in partnerships since 2021, assisting a variety of entities in developing effective risk management tools for agricultural producers. The California Air Resources Board has announced that it would delay its enforcement of the advanced Clean Fleets regulation. Enforcement will not begin until the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency grants the state a waiver for implementing stricter regulations than the federal government or determines that a waiver is unnecessary. The regulation mandates zero-emission vehicles for specific fleets, with an expectation of introducing nearly 1.7 million of them into the California fleet by 2050. CARB's decision not to enforce reporting requirements comes amid legal challenges by the California Trucking Association claiming the rule violates the Commerce Clause and is preempted by federal laws. CARB is encouraging voluntary compliance while awaiting EPA decisions, emphasizing its commitment to enforcing the regulation once a waiver is granted or deemed unnecessary. Applications are still open for the 2024 Leadership Farm Bureau class, but the deadline is quickly approaching. Leadership Farm Bureau is a 10-month leadership development program designed to invest in emerging Farm Bureau leaders. Sessions will provide training support in the areas of leadership, personal development, communications, public speaking, working with the media, political advocacy, government structure, key political issues, and Farm Bureau organization and structure, and more. Farm Bureau and industry leaders will provide more than 250 hours of instruction during seven sessions. Meetings will vary according to each month's topic and agenda, but each session runs approximately two days with exception to Washington, D.C. and other out-of-state travel. Applications for the program will be accepted through January 15th. More information can be found under the Programs and Services tabs at cfbf.com. I'm Brian German for Agnet West Radio Network. Will you focus more on labels in 2024? That's coming up on This Land of Ours. The International Food Information Council's annual food trends forecast predicts consumers will focus more on label claims this year. The report suggests the industry should expect a heightened emphasis on transparent food labeling, empowering shoppers to make informed decisions about the foods and beverages they consume. Labels such as clean, cold-pressed, and fermented, which consumers associate with healthfulness, will continue to be on the forefront. Actions by the Food and Drug Administration are bringing Americans closer to an updated definition of a healthy food. As far as consumers are concerned, the most common attributes they believe define healthy food are fresh, low in sugar, and good source of protein. IFIC's Chris Solid says front-of-package nutrition labeling will be a major focus in 2024 as U.S. food regulators roll out a new labeling proposal to help shoppers make easier, quicker, and healthier food decisions. The Department of Agriculture this week reminds farmers, ranchers, and forest landowners that January 13th is the deadline to apply for the Discrimination Financial Assistance Program. 
The program is made possible by the Inflation Reduction Act, which provided $2.2 billion in funding. Farmers, ranchers, and forest landowners who experienced discrimination by USDA and its farm loan programs before January 1st of 2021 and or are currently debtors with the assigned or assumed USDA farm loan debt that was the subject of USDA discrimination that occurred before January 1st of 2021 are eligible for the program. Applications may be submitted online through the program website at 2207apply.gov or in person at a DFAP local office or by mail. The full list of offices and their operating hours can be found on the application website. After receiving feedback from potential applicants in September, USDA extended the deadline to January 13th of this year. This provided potential applicants six months to prepare applications. The previous deadline was October 31st. This is the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson, and we will return in just a moment. Welcome back. The nation's farm economy took a big income hit in 2023. Where does that leave the farm sector going into the new year? Gary Crawford gets the view of one expert on this edition of Agriculture USA. Well, we got through the New Year's Eve revelry, and now back to business again. Many of us like to start the business of the new year, though, with an annual physical a checkup. So if we were to consider the nation's farm economy as a medical patient overall, what would the doctor say about the health of the farm economy? I'd say the patient's in really good shape, healthy, and they're going to have to continue to manage that health in this coming year. We'll take a look at what happened in the farm economy in 2023, what's likely to happen in this new year on this edition of Agriculture USA. I'm Gary Crawford. Here's part of that 1978 Kenny Rogers song hit, you know, The Gambler. Said if you're gonna play the game, boy, you gotta learn to play it right. Play it right, yes. And as we look back at how farmers played the game in 2023, the farmers showed a lot of flexibility in planting coming into this year. USDA's chief economist Seth Meyer says that word flexibility really does apply to how producers shifted their plantings to adjust to weather and market conditions. You know, we survey farmers as to their intention, and then we come back and we survey them to what they actually did. And I think we had some movement, at least from what they signaled their initial thoughts about what they were going to do, and then what they actually did in response to the market saying, hey, can we have a little bit more of this crop or that crop? In March, corn growers said they intended to plant 92 million acres to corn. But by planting time, a few months later, the market signals changed and farmers reacted by planting over 94 million acres to corn. Meanwhile, for soybeans, farmers in March were intending to plant 87.5 million acres. They decided to cut that down to 83.5, one of the biggest March to June acreage changes on record. That was one surprise this past year, and 2023 certainly brought us some other surprises along the way. Overall crop yields, pretty darn good for corn and soybeans, for instance, on a crop that didn't really have all that favorable of growing conditions. In fact, at harvest time, one Iowa corn grower told us, It's remarkable the yields that we're pulling out given the limited rainfall we had. And, of course, Seth Meyer says, despite some very hot, very dry weather, We had crops and yields just a little bit below trend. But given the farmer's response to the demands for corn early on, we had a record large corn crop. 
15.2 billion bushels, 11% more than the 2022 crop. Truly remarkable. However, as farmers close the books on 2023, many of those spreadsheets are showing that overall U.S. farm income in 2023 came down a lot. But it came down from a level in 2022 that was record high. Seth Meyer says net cash income for producers in 2023 will come in at just under $158 billion, a 21% drop from 2022, but still well above the average of the last couple decades. And an interesting fact here is also that the last three consecutive years of farm income are the highest three farm income years in my lifetime. Uh, Your lifetime, Seth, Uh, that brings the question up, just how old are you? I'm not as young as I like to think I am. How about that? (laughs) All right, we'll leave it at that. But we did check the income reports for 21, 2022, and 23. They're the highest three consecutive farm income years in 50 years, Seth. Nonetheless, with that 20% plus income decline in 2023, it looks like producers are going to need to tighten their financial belts a bit more in 2024. Seth Meyer says commodity prices continue to soften going into this new year. And I think absent some other external disruption, we're going to have challenging prices in the coming year and a challenging margins when it comes to things like break even, even for things like corn and soybeans. And so Meyer says that in this next year, farmers are going to have to be on their marketing game. You got to know. Know They're going to have to be paying attention a lot more to, to that margin and that cost. But he doesn't expect any kind of major or minor farm crisis situation. I think you've had three really good years in the farm sector, which gives me some confidence that producers will be able to manage a downturn because they're in a good position to do so. So, Dr. Myers, a technical evaluation of the health of our farm economy in technical language? Pretty darn good. Pretty darn good. You've been listening to Agriculture USA. I'm Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. In some parts of the West, concern grows about a slow start to the winter mountain snowpack accumulation season and what that may mean for water supplies. Rod Bain reports. There is a notable year-over-year difference in mountain snowpack accumulations in the Sierra Nevada range, California's main source of irrigation and municipal water. As USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey explains. As we started the new year, we had seen an accumulation of only about two and a half inches of liquid equivalency in the snowpack across the Sierra Nevada in northern and central California. And that compares to last year at this time when we had more than 15 inches. The Western Mountain snowpack season is at its one-third mark. Rippy also reminds us that an average water equivalency for Sierra Nevada snowpack at the end of the season, April 1st, is 30 inches of snow. With that two and a half inch accumulation, that is not only far behind average, but it makes it that much more difficult to make this up. Since the start of 2024, we have seen a little improvement, but even so, we've only seen that liquid equivalency a little above three inches. 
And Rippy adds that what is happening with the Sierra Nevada snowpack this winter is a recurring theme in several mountain ranges of the West. Although not quite as critically as in California. So as examples, we see snowpacks that are closer to two-thirds of average in states like Utah and in Colorado. Not certainly a disaster at this point, and we're still getting by on that abundant moisture that hit all areas of the West a year ago in 2022-23. He adds that those areas, like the Golden State, need a boost of significant moisture and snowpack accumulation between now and April 1st. We will hit the halfway point for most of the western U.S. at some point during January. I think we're going to start turning the corner in some areas over the next couple of weeks, but we have a long way to go to get back to even normal given this slow start to the western winter wet season. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. This is the Agonet News Hour, and we will be back in just a moment. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour. Here's Brian German with this week's almond update. Today's specialty crop news brought to you by the Almond Board of California. You can find them online at almonds.com. While at the Almond Conference last month, we had the opportunity to speak with Managing Director at SRG, Mickey Citarella. He explained that we're living in something called an attention economy and how that relates to building demand for almonds. So the first thing about the attention economy is, is, is what is it? And it's essentially multiple entities are now working to capture what's one of our most scarce resources right now, which is our mental engagement. Right now, there's so much clutter the environment there's so much content being created and if you as a business want people to take action you have to find a way to break through that clutter resonate with consumers and get them to take action on your behalf and one of the things that you'd noted was just a figure of how much content is now just being generated and that that seems like a pretty busy environment there it is it's wild to see where each year we are creating significantly more content than the next and on the consumer side we're consuming more content than ever before the average consumer spends three hours and 15 minutes on their phone and if you were to measure how much content they scroll through it is more than 305 feet of content or the equivalent of the height of the Statue of Liberty. And I know you can't see this because radio, but when you think about just your thumb moving for 305 vertical feet, it's absolutely crazy. That is a wild thing just to think about. And one of the things that you also noted was even inside the grocery store, physical locations, things are getting even more crowded there for attention. Exactly. So there was some research that came out that looked at the retail footprint of a grocery store. And in the 1990s, there was on average about 7,000 SKUs or individual products within a grocery store. Flash forward to today, in that same square footage, there's now 40,000 to 50,000 SKUs in a grocery store. So when you're going to shop, there's now so much more decisions that you need to make, and it's so much more difficult to grab people's attention on shelf and get them to choose your product. And that was uh, really what this morning's session was kind of focused on, was how are almonds trying to make their way through this fairly crowded economy and, and um, crowded space for, for content and getting messaging out? It's 
that's exactly what it's all about. And that's really why Almond Board exists, is there's more clutter than ever before. So how do we break through it? And we've built a very methodical ecosystem that first focuses on what are the key aspects of our reputation that we always need to communicate. So we're consistently doing nutrition research and communicating those benefits to ensure that consumers around the globe know that almonds are one of the healthiest snacks on the planet, one of the healthiest nuts, and something you should eat if you want to live a healthy lifestyle. And similarly, from a reputation standpoint, we want to focus on how we grow and telling our stewardship story to prove to people that the almond industry is one of the most responsible and innovative industries on the planet. So we first focus on making sure we're building that reputation and consistently talk about it in the market. Then the next piece is how do we drive relevancy in all the different markets around the globe? So we do breakthrough marketing tactics, utilizing new age media, amazing spokespeople, like in the United States we've used Deion Sanders, now known as Coach Prime, to be our spokesperson for California Almonds. Or in India we did a huge uh, takeover during the World Cup of Cricket to showcase that almonds can help you have energy to win. Or even in, in Europe, we've solicited Mother Nature to talk about the natural healthy benefits of almonds. So for us, breaking through is first starting with that reputation and making sure we're communicating those benefits and then finding really interesting, unique, bold and breakthrough ways to make sure our message is relevant to consumers and helps them to take action. And uh, as part of that kind of carving your spot out, um, you know, the partnership with Coach Prime seems to uh, be highlighted as being very successful. He's very focused on it. As part of that here at the Almond Conference, you were running around in the Almond costume and, um, you know, kind of congratulating on his achievement this year as well. That's true. So, yes, I, I did wear an Almond costume for a few hours. Coach Prime just won Sports Illustrated Sports Person of the Year. And so we really wanted to congratulate him and demonstrate just how excited we are in this partnership. Because like everything he does, he's gone be above and beyond for the almond industry and continues to talk about our benefits each and every day. And that's just part of one of the many ways that you've found um, through engagement, just getting messaging out. This is a kind of a keystone of, of that approach is putting content like this together to, to reach out and try to make, um, you know, make some noise through all the clutter there. Exactly. You have to capitalize on the moment. So right when we found out he won Sports Person of the Year, we didn't want to sit and wait to put something out. We gathered a team, got a cameraman, and made a video in less than 24 hours to congratulate him because in the attention economy, the news cycle is so fast, and what's relevant today almost always becomes irrelevant tomorrow. So you must find a way to make something that's breakthrough, that's exciting, and also relevant to the times. And so that's what we've done here with that. And just lastly, um, obviously with things that change fairly rapidly, it's uh, difficult to predict the future, but what's maybe the next step or what might be on deck in terms of um, maybe new approaches or new ways of engagement there? I think the best approach that you can have is to have a singular message that can uniquely manifest in the marketplace in a way that resonates with each channel. So think about this idea with Coach Prime. We have a TV commercial that resonates with people watching football. We have created different content that resonates well on TikTok different content on Instagram and Facebook. And so the, the key thing now is finding that central idea, your core theme, and expressing it in a way that can break through on each one of those platforms. Gone are the days where you can just do one advertisement and it works for everything. You have to find that little unique thing that's going to get consumers to stop scrolling on their phones, stop 
and pay attention to your message. So I think that's it. It's one key idea expressed in many different unique ways in the marketing ecosystem. Thank you, Brian. This is the Agnet News Hour, and we will be right back. You are listening to the Agnet News Hour. Now for more news. Despite millions of dollars to help out, some farmers struggle to get access to land. David Geiger has this report. Farmland values continue to increase nationwide, creating a barrier to entry for new and young farmers. At the 2024 Land Investment Expo in Des Moines, Iowa, Robert Bonney, the USDA Undersecretary for Farm Production and Conservation, spoke on the importance of the next generation. He says there's a land access program worth $300 million to help out, but access requires creativity. About how we use our loans and guaranteed loans to support particularly young beginning farmers and ranchers. We think there are uh, big opportunities there. We're looking at ways that we can improve the servicing around our loans, that we can expand the amount we're able to loan, that we can streamline it, make it easier for folks to get in. I talked about streamlining on the uh, conservation side. And we'll be out uh, uh, this year with some changes to the loan program that we think will uh, will enhance this substantially. Bonnie adds farmland access is an issue that should be talked about within the context of a farm bill. Rising land values are, are making it harder, particularly for uh, young folks to, to get into agriculture and for families to justify staying in. So I think lots of opportunities here in our existing programs. But it, be, it ought to be a subject that Congress thinks about in the context of the Farm Bill as well. Obviously, we weren't able to get a Farm Bill in 2023. We'll see about 2024. Outside of land access, Bonnie praised conservation efforts. He says farmers deserve more credit. I think the environmental community doesn't appreciate the depth of the commitment to stewardship in our, our private landowners and our farmers, ranchers, and forest landowners. And we ought to develop policies that take advantage of that, that tap into that. It's an enormous resource. Um, we've got a number of, of examples across the country, whether it be wildlife conservation or others, where, uh, where private working lands are making the difference. And we need to do a better job as we think about environment and conservation of tapping into that and figuring out how we do a better job as the federal government in working with farmers, ranchers, and forest landowners to make that happen. Bonnie adds, nothing in agriculture can be accomplished alone. So as we think about what we can do in USDA on all types of these things, we recognize we've got a We've got to partner with folks out in the countryside, whether it's around our conservation efforts, crop insurance, uh, what we do. So um, that's a really important piece. Again, Robert Bonney, USDA Undersecretary for Farm Production and Conservation, speaking at the 2024 Land Investment Expo. Reporting from Des Moines, Iowa, I'm David Geiger. Preparing for the calving season is a critical aspect of beef cattle management. Chad Smith has details. Dr. Brett Terhar, beef technical consultant for Elanco Animal Health, says you can never prepare too much or too early for calving. If we need to change direction, especially on nutrition, we need to think about that 60 to 90 days ahead of calving. So generally, I recommend people make an honest evaluation of the body condition score of their animals ahead of that third trimester. A good practice would be to go out and look at the first 20 animals that you see in the group and write down each of their body condition scores. And want to see is a six to six and a half body condition score for heifers and five and a half to six for cows. Evaluating that 
60 to 90 days prior to calving gives us time to add a little weight to those cows if we need to. It is really difficult to change course on body condition score after calving. Having animals in the correct body condition score sets us up to have healthy calves on the ground right now and has a great impact on our fertility, which will impact our next year's calf crop. He talks about the steps producers can take to set cows up for a successful calving season. There are two things that I really pay attention to when we're getting ready for the calving season. One is nutritional management and management of vaccine. When we look at nutrition, we want to make sure that is a balanced ration. You can work with a nutritionist or your local feed store. We want to make sure that we have adequate protein and, and energy going into the calving season that has effect on live calf birth weights. It has an effect on colostrum, quantity, and quality. The other thing is the use of vaccination. And that's important in that it can change the quantity and the quality of the colostrum. Doing that at the proper time is also important. We want to be in that eight to 10 weeks prior to calving range of time when we would apply the vaccine to the cows or heifers. To learn more about how to keep your cattle one step ahead, talk with an Elanco Animal Health representative or visit farmanimal.elanco.com. Chad Smith reporting. Heavy rains, blizzards, snow, high winds among the marks of a series of active weather systems that have or will travel across the country. Rod Bain has more. El Nino seems to finally really be taking hold of North American weather patterns. With USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey presenting as evidence a series of active storms expected this month, starting with a past system from late last week. That system, a classic El Nino track storm, primarily affecting the southern and eastern United States. With heavy precipitation. A second system of heavy rains and snows and high winds were on display Tuesday along several East Coast states after creating blizzard conditions in parts of the Great Plains earlier in the week. Rippy also warns. Let's do it all again in three to four days because we have storm number three in the pipeline. That system expected to have a similar strength, path and impact as the early week weather activity. And it's going to amplify some of the other concerns that we already have, including the livestock stress, travel disruptions, severe weather in the deep south, and the eastern flooding. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. That's today's top agriculture news. I'm Sabrina Halverson. Thank you for sharing your morning with us. To get more information on the topics you heard today, visit Agnet West online at agnetwest.com. You can also stay connected by following us on our social media at Agnet West on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also find our broadcast team of Brian German and Sabrina Halvertson on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening to the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. Agnet West Radio Network, your primary choice for agriculture news.